Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. A quick word. The conversation in this podcast with Jason Clark was recorded before SAG-AFTRA went on strike. Sweetheart, hey, look at me. They don't pay me what they pay me just to kick me to the curb. Okay, this will all get sorted out. Dad. Yes. You're going to get fired. Welcome to the official Winning Time podcast from HBO. I'm Rodney Barnes, executive producer on the show. Hey, two, Pat. You're supposed to be my partner, Irvin. Yeah, your silent partner. Just do as he's told. Shut up and ball. No more of this wild shit. It's coach. As always, we start the episode breaking down fact and fiction with Jeff Perlman, author of the book that inspired our series. Then we're joined by director Tanya Hamilton, who'll tell us how she helped steer the ship as Westhead went overboard. To finish, we chat with Jason Clark about embodying the character of Jerry West. But first, a quick recap. In episode five, titled The Hamburger Hamlet, we learn Magic's true power as the Lakers restructure their coaching staff. Westhead is out, replaced by Pat Riley with a dash of Jerry West. It takes a while, but Riley eventually whips the team into shape, just in time for another standoff against the Philadelphia 76ers. A quick note, some of these scenes and moments and instances are fictional. We add them in to tie facts together and to weave a narrative that is compelling. Again, some things are fictional, but they're inspired by true events that we hope you greatly enjoy and watch from week to week. All righty, let's get into it. Once again, our first guest is Jeff Perlman. Jeff is the author of the book Showtime. Today we're in episode six. Mm -hmm. Something really, really big happens. Paul Westhead gets fired. Yep. What were the circumstances around such fire? Well, he lost the team. That's the first thing. He lost Magic Johnson which is a huge problem when Magic Johnson's a centerpiece and he's just signed this new contract. Yep. He kind of lost Jerry West, who really didn't have faith in him to begin with. And ultimately, he lost Jerry Buss, the owner. And that's a big problem. So once you lose the owner of the team and the owner has lost patience, the builder of the team has lost patience, the superstar has lost patience, you're sort of cooked. Do you think he saw it coming? No, not really. It was very unusual to have a coach successfully undermined by a player. And that's what happened here. Like, he was undermined, probably rightly, by Magic Johnson. So when he's called in, he was shocked. He definitely didn't know Jerry Buss was leaning toward firing him. His relationship with West was sort of hard to read for him and probably even for West a little bit because there were such different types. He knew Magic wanted him gone. That was clear by now. He knew the players were having some troubles with him. But ultimately, he knew they were in the middle of a winning streak. Right. And it's I can't think of another time, literally, in the history of modern sports where a team is rolling along and they decide the coach needs to go. 
the extraneous circumstance here was, though, that the superstar of the team was on the lip of quitting on the team and demanding a trade. So Jerry Buss felt like, in a way, his hands were tied on this. All right, so now Coach Westhead has been fired, and we have this press conference. The best thing ever. Speak to the chaos that was that press conference. So Jerry Buss wanted Jerry West to take over as coach, and Jerry West did not want to coach. He was not made for coaching his temperament. It just wasn't. So Jerry Buss says, well, you're going to take over. And Jerry West says, I'm not freaking taking over. Well, who's going to take over? Well, we have an assistant coach, Pat Riley. And Buss, who you have to remember, doesn't come from a basketball background. True, yes, yes, yes. Like, at all basketball background. He was an engineer. Says, well, what if we kind of have co-coaches? And Jerry West is like, fine. But really, in his mind, Pat Riley's a coach. And he'll just help him out for a few games. What did West think of Riley? Did Riley make an impression? Yeah, West liked Riley. West okay. also knew him for years from being with the Lakers. Okay. There's no reason to think Riley was going to be a good coach or not be a good coach, but he certainly was a competent basketball mind. Yeah. Like Paul Westhead came out of LaSalle. Like mm-hmm. Paul Westhead was an unknown, just the assistant coach who helped Jack McKinney. Pat Riley was a Laker, a former Laker player who came on, did some broadcasting, was the assistant coach. It'd be like taking any NBA player from that era, putting him in a suit, having him be an assistant, and he'll know the X's and O's of the game. Right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they thought at this moment Pat Riley's going to be a genius coach, but they thought, all right, this is a competent guy who understands basketball. He's our assistant coach. We'll let him be the coach, and hopefully right. it works out. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Jerry West is thinking, I'll help him out for a little bit, and he's the coach. Buss, in his mind, is like, no, you guys are the co-coaches. And Riley didn't know what the hell was going on, but he was happy to have sort of an advancement. Nice. So we have an individual who happens to be sitting in the room with me right now who made a cameo. As one of the reporters. My question, what was that like? It was awful. It was, <laughs> I never want to be an actor again. It was, okay, I'm not joking. I got there at 9 in the morning. I got there early. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Started at 10. I was, like, eager. I was uh-huh. like, oh, this is so great. There's a parking spot for you, Mr. Yes. Perlman. Oh, what? A parking spot yeah, for me? Yeah. Here's craft services over there, Mr. Yeah. Perlman. Oh, then you're going to your trailer and get your makeup put on. Okay. Should do a wig, blah, 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 this, that. Oh, it's so great to be. You wrote the book? You yes. wrote the book? Can you sign my book? Sure, I can <laughs> sign your book. Let me go to craft services and get my fifth sandwich. This is amazing. Okay. Time to film the scene. 106 takes, maybe 95 yeah. takes yeah. over and over and over uh-huh. and over. And they're using the uh, clove cigarettes in the yes. scene. And I'm just breathing in this toxic, whatever it is. It was 10 o'clock by the time I left the set. <laughs> I was so nervous going in that I would screw up the lines, and I said them 853,000 times that day. Okay. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Dr. Buss, there's a game tomorrow night. That game will end. Will both coaches come out and talk to us? Well, that is something we have discussed. I mean, who picks a starting lineup? Well, generally in basketball, it's the coach. <laughs> I'm glad I did it. Because it's cool, right? Yes. And it's cool to show my kids. And oh, like, yeah. It's cool. It'll be you something. You deserved that moment. I truly am glad I did. And I will say this. I'm being serious about this. Yes. All day I was surrounded by extras. And it really gives you a freaking respect uh-huh. for people who do the extra work and the grind of it all. Big time. It was cool. And the one thing you guys did, I don't know if your idea or Max or Jim or whoever, but um, when he calls on me in the press conference, he says, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool. That I'm actually Jeff, the reporter. And there you go. So now... Coach Westhead is gone. Yep. We're in a new world. Riley really hasn't established himself as the man yet. Can you talk about those days, seemingly dark days, 
for the team, for Magic and Bus, just that moment? Uh, really bad. It's funny because Magic might be the most beloved athlete in the history of Southern California. If you yeah. think about the different people through the years, there's Kobe, there's Magic. And um, he was hated. He was blamed hardcore. They booed him. They booed, first game. They yeah, booed Magic Johnson yeah, yeah, first yeah, yeah. game back. It got really uncomfortable. And again, it's just a different time period where it was felt like he was out of line. Like, you're getting the coach fired in the middle of a winning streak. And are you proud of yourself for doing this? Like, that was the general, the columnist, Jim Murray was the big columnist in L.A. at the time, from the L.A. Times. You know, savage Magic Johnson. Like, he's a coach killer. Well, Magic has a great smile. Yeah. Do you think that was the thing that won him back, won the fans back and, and all of that? Was it winning? Was it, what winning. was it? Okay. Winning, 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 winning. People do tend to forget. Oh, yeah. Nobody remembers anything if you win. Yeah. And he was great. Like, yeah. He was great. It's hard to hate Magic. I feel like Magic and Shaq suffer from something, which is they've had such interesting post-careers that people tend to minimize what they did in their careers. Yeah. And Magic Johnson is a top 10 all-time NBA player. And people forget the brilliance of being a 6'9 point guard in an era of 6'2 point Big guards. Time. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Okay, so Pat Riley is now head coach. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about how he started off and then how he made the transition between being Pat Riley, new coach that wasn't planning to be head coach, mm -hmm. to the sexy rock star guy I saw dancing personally at a Bruce Springsteen concert? Damn. Well, you know, Riley comes in, he's very uncertain. He has Jerry West with him. He doesn't really know how to be a head coach. He tries being buddies with the players because he was a player, and he was a player fairly recently, and he's not that much older than these guys, and in Kareem's case, he's a contemporary. And he still looks like a player. He still looks like a yeah. player. He just has bad knees, can't play anymore. But so early on, he's like, come on, guys, and he goes kind of, you know, we can do it, and, and it's not working. And in fact, it goes really poorly at first. See, they went from being on a winning streak to sort of being on a losing streak or a bad run. And at some point, it just hits him. Like, I can't be friends with these guys. If I want to survive in this job and I want to thrive in this job, I'm not their friends, I'm their coach. And he sort of turns it around and he starts being the Riley who became Riley, which is commanding and dogmatic and, in a sense, argumentative. And he would pull Magic from a game. Instead of being like, come on, Magic, let's... It's right. like, Magic, yeah. out, Norm, in. And that really was a turning point for him. And the whole, the stylist thing, it was kind of gradual, but he sort of read the room really well. Like, this is L.A., and right. it matters, and how you look matters, and how you present yourself matters. And, I mean, he truly goes down as a fashion icon. Do you think that transition he made from being one of the guys, that that happened because he tapped into his dad's stuff? Because his dad was a coach, right? Well, his dad played Major League Baseball very right. briefly with the Phillies and was a manager in the minors. It certainly impacted him. I mean, the thing about Riley and his dad is, in a lot of ways— he was always running away from his dad. His dad was abusive. His dad was an alcoholic. He didn't want to be his dad. But we are byproducts of how we came up. But the thing about Riley, it's really interesting. He's as a product of Schenectady, New York. He's mm. not an L.A. guy. He's not a glamorous guy. He's a sort of hard scrabble New York guy, and he had that edge to him. And when he comes to L.A. and he transitions to have this sort of look and this glam feel, he still was always the edgy kid from New York. And he also was a byproduct of the Adolph Rupp, Kentucky that's where he was coached. Yeah, yeah. And, like, there were many gross things about Edith Rupp. He also happened to be a brilliant basketball coach. So, like, there are things you learn along the way. Dad, kind of a violent guy, alcoholic, minor league guy. Adolph Rupp, one of the great coaches of all time. Schenectady, New York, hard scrabble. Watching Paul Westhead, seeing how he screws up and what worked, and then sort of taking over as your own. It seems like 
even though Riley became coach-coach, there was still this tweener-type thing to where he didn't seem to fit into that red back thing. He was still closer to the idea of not player-coach, but a guy who was the next iteration of what a coach would become in the modern era of basketball. Definitely. If you did, like, the coaching evolution skip model, yeah, right, and you go sort of Red Holtzman, Red Auerbach, guys like that early on, like those guys, those coaches, yeah, they were X's and O's, basketball, basketball, basketball. That's all that mattered. They dressed like dirty napkins. You know, like it wasn't about that. It wasn't about an image at all. It's zero. And Riley was the guy who smoothed out the edges. Right. And all of a sudden, guys became smoother. Yes. And less edgy. The Lakers were the first franchise where the celebrity coach was kind of a thing. Right. Riley became that. I think for Jerry Buss. Yeah, that probably fit. Yeah. It started to matter. Yeah. The idea was the coach matters. And when you think about what he did with the Forum Club and how celebrities sat, you know, uh, courtside and you had all, everything was entertainment. The cheerleaders, everything, the Laker girls, everything became an aspect of entertainment. The coach sort of has to be a part of that too. I just want to say, I honestly think Jerry Buss, not talking players, but people who impacted the NBA, I think it goes probably David Stern, Jerry Buss, one, two, as far as he made an entertainment venue. Mm -hmm. He made it, you're not going to a basketball game just to watch basketball. And if you don't like basketball, you wouldn't go. He made it a thing. And Pat Riley becoming this runway model along the sideline Mm -hmm. fit in right with that. Once again, Jeff, the saddest part of our conversations is when you get to the end. I just want to tell you how grateful and how honored I am to be able to sit here and talk to you right now and that you showed up and that you drove from Orange County to come here and to sit here with me. It's an honor being with you. Joining me now is Tanya Hamilton, the director of both episodes four and five. Tanya, thank you for driving in here and sitting here and talking to me and all of that. Yeah, it's nice to see you, Rodney. It's great to see you as well. I want to ask you before I start uh, interrogating you, what is it like coming back to a show that you participated in in season one? It's a little bit like going back to the vacation house, you know, (laughs) and expecting every single thing to be exactly the same. Yes. Only a lot of people have lived in it in the in-between. Yeah. So it's the same, but just there are little nuances, little differences. Yes, and hopefully good ones. You did say vacation house. You didn't say, like, a mental institution. (laughs) (laughs) So you said vacation, which implies a positive experience. Yes, very much. So in this episode, we're in the aftermath of Magic telling the press he wants to be traded. Dr. Buss with the damage control. Pat Riley is all anxious and smoking cigarettes. How did you prepare each actor for all of those various emotions and things? And how did you prepare yourself? Well, I try to employ what I do with my kids at home, uh, (laughs) frankly. No, but, you know, I think a big part of it is listening because what I found was some actors shifted a little bit from season one, the things that they want or the things that they were trying out or the things that they were after but couldn't get. You know, all those things, it's those nuances, again, that sort of can change in the in-between. So I just try to listen as much as I possibly can, and I try to work within their boundaries 
And that means I also try to understand what those boundaries are. One of my favorite parts of the season is Paul Westhead, played by Jason Siegel, who I think does a fantastic job. Agreed. In conveying a really high high and a really, really low low. How did you see the Westhead storyline first? And how did you see him in that moment prior to getting fired? I loved what Jason was doing, which is to really kind of protect his ego. Right. The very sort of human, down-to-earth, one's ego is so enormous that it blinds you. Yes. And then he sort of added in this wonderful layer of absurdity. You know, to me, I think that Westhead is definitely sort of a tragic kind of character. But again, without that layer of absurdity, that's just, you know, it's subtle, but it's really in there. There's just a little more levity to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to taking itself so seriously and about this man who can't see the truth that's right in front of him. How do you know when to lean into the absurdity and the parts that are more real, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it? I mean, I think it's the actor. I mean, I think my job is to step out of the way and let somebody who really can feel it do what he does. And look, I cover myself. I definitely try to get some takes where it feels a little more grounded. And then, you know, and Jason does his thing. So really it feels like my job is just to understand what he's doing and support him, but just stay out of his way so he can do it. It seems like when Westhead walks into the office and he sees the blackboard with the other coaches' names up there, that he's starting to get it, but it's too late at that point. Yeah. What were you trying to create in that moment, and how did you go about creating I know the actor plays a huge part of it, but you play a huge part of it in setting the environment for the actor to play within. Yeah. So I feel like he doesn't really truly accept that it's done for him until he's sitting in front of bus. And even then, he goes into that office with a plan, and the plan is going to deliver him, and that he doesn't 100% sort of really believe any of it. That's a great point. So I think that, like, that blindness that he is plagued by is just continuing. You're doubling down almost. Yeah, I mean, and I think, again, it's that level of absurdity yes. that takes the edge off of all of those moments, you know, seeing that stuff on the board, seeing Jerry West. Like, they're just all of these fleeting moments. Any normal person who wasn't so blinded by all of this sort of, he's so sure of himself right. and his positioning, someone would see that, but not Westhead. It's really that moment when he comes into the office and it's after he says, you know, I've got a plan. It's all going to be okay. Again, I think that moment is so intriguing because there's a sense of desperation, whereas just a moment ago there was hubris. Right. One of the moments that I think supports this is when the secretary stands in between the two. And the secretary is stopping the head coach from doing something that he wants to do. Someone is actively telling him no. And... He's on the outside. Yes, he's on the outside, yes. And I agree that there are these sort of shifts in power that happen, and that's one of the moments. I think the other moment is that I really love the choice that John made, which was to come at that moment of saying to him, you're done, with there isn't much emotion there. Right. If you're wondering what I'm thinking, uh, I say we give this a couple days. We let things simmer down. We let cooler heads prevail. We're letting you go, Paul. I don't think that's a good idea. You said that this was my team. 
So I'm just doing what you empowered me to do. And we came up with a way to win. I did. I came up with it. Look, I understand. I understand. You love magic. But it takes a team to win. It's a team you're no longer a part of. You're making a big mistake. He's already been tossed out. And I think that emotionally what I really like about that moment in particular is that then it forces Westhead. He's the one who's holding all the emotions in the scene. John is done. Right. You know, he's already moved past it. And Westhead has to catch up. And at a certain point, he cuts it off. Right. And I love that because in the back of his brain, he knows it the entire time. And now that moment takes over. And so when he says, thank you very much, right. and puts his hand out, right. he's come to the end. And it's just such an abrupt and I think kind of wonderful oh, you know, moment. It's incredible. And the thing that got me was, as much as he played a massive role in his own demise, I still felt sorry for him. Yeah, agreed, agreed. One of the most intense scenes in the episode is when Magic confronts Jerry Buss. Let's play it. I'm done playing for that motherfucker. The rest be what it is. So what you want? I want you to cash your big fucking check and play nice. Let me ask you something. You think your father would be pouting like this? A man that worked his whole life for a fraction of what I'm giving you? fuck you got to bring my father into this fuck? Talk about your own fucked up family. Because you too busy sticking your dick in anything that moves. Talking about a son. You're a 20-year-old that I made a multi-millionaire. Have some respect. And I earned that shit. It wasn't because you love me like a father. It's because I'm the best player on this motherfucking team. What did you take from that scene? Because it's a powerful scene. Yeah, I love that scene. I always love big dramatic scenes. It's always Mm. fun. I like Um, when people yell. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Yes. When I read it, I thought, oh, this is a moment between father and son. There was a liberation that was happening. I really love that Bus looked at magic, you know, in the way that you look at someone you feel responsible for or you you have a lot of of love for, but you don't see them as an equal. Exactly. And I felt like on magic's end, there's an element of childhood in there. Yeah. You know, that in some ways he comes into the scene the way that a kid walks in the room Mm -hmm. after they've been wronged. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. That was something that I really remember liking a lot about the scene, that he would come in having not gotten what he wanted. And he's mad. You know, that's not rage. It's just he's mad the way kids are mad when they don't get what they want. And there was the jumping off point to sort of lead us, you know, to the rage that comes later. And I think there's also just sort of an unspoken layer that I found interesting about race. It's just, it's unspoken, two layers down, you know. Oh, boy, I'm glad you said it, but go ahead. But I I love that, you know, and I felt like both actors were very aware of that. When you mix race and father and son and, you know, two men who have the same proclivities, you Mm -hmm. know, all of those things are playing through the scene and then just hurt, really yeah. simply. You know, Magic is hurt. Why? He he wasn't treated the way he thought he needed to be. Another factor in this, we have to look at the period of time that we're in. We're not that far away from the civil rights movement. We're not that far within the game of players being able to talk to their owners that way or their coaches in that way. 50s, 60s, 70s, the players just played the game. Yeah. And whatever they had to take, they took. And so... Again, in the evolution of the game and the relationship between player, coach, 
owner, I think this is a really pivotal moment in just sort of displaying the evolution. Yeah. Did you talk to John C. at all about anything within that scene? You know, the subject of race came up, and I think that, you know, that was something I think especially for John was was considered. And Quincy and I talked about it as well, you know, just in what that rage might feel like for him and what it feels like for this black kid to be so thunderous in volume and in what he's asking for. Yeah, so I think that all of those things, I mean, I think that's why that scene was actually so much fun because— We got to talk about rage. We got to talk about being black and being a man. It brought up a lot of really interesting, you know, layers. Why do you think Dr. Buss brought Magic's dad into the conversation? You know, I mean, I think that it's the way that adults try to manipulate and overpower kids, not to go back to the kids thing again. But I do think that's the dynamic between these two men. That's from from Buss's perspective— he is a kid. Right. And therefore, there's an ownership. There's an emotional ownership. There's obviously a physical ownership yes. that's going on between the two of them. So I feel like it's pulling out the wagging finger stops, you know, that adults do against their children. Him just bringing dad in, I thought, sort of was behave right for lack of a better way. If I was talking to your father, he would understand exactly what I'm saying. Why can't you behave that way? That's great, yeah. Because then it, it sort of maybe speaks generationally. Yes. You know, Yes. that's your point. Yeah, I yeah. love that. So now that Westhead is out and Riley's got the job and that press conference, the chaotic nature of it, everyone seemed to play perfectly. How'd you see that scene? Yeah, I mean, I think that scene was a real fun collaboration. First of all, you know, John and I watch the actual footage of the press conference. And we had, like, a good template to work from. And, you know, I think that I wanted to emulate the press conference as much as possible and then to sort of make it as zany as we could. (laughs) Um, And we just tried to make it as chaotic and weird as possible. Was there any special attention given to Adrian Brody in this moment? Because he's slowly, slowly, slowly been evolving to that place, and he's still kind of in a holding pattern here. Anything special with Adrian? Yeah, I mean, a ton special with Adrian, actually. I mean, I think that he felt sort of slightly peripheral last season. Yes, This season, I found him to have a really clear sense of the arc that he was playing with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I feel like I walked into these sort of detailed progressions that he had sort of put together for himself. And my job became, if I can sort of help nudge here and there, then that's what I was there for. And so, for instance, that scene in the elevator when he thinks he's going to be fired— before the press conference, which I think all that stuff in the hallways really matters to kind of set the stage for where he is when he's on that stage later. The tone was something that he, I felt, managed, you know, really, really well. Especially when he mentions Westhead, you know, and how difficult the moment is. It's not been a very fun day for me. Paul is a friend. And, uh, you know, sometimes it takes a left hook to get you going. 
think uh, we've all been dealt that kind of blow. A lot of guys who've just become aware that they're going to be placed in this position, which is one step closer to the ultimate position of power, would just be thinking about themselves. But the fact that he still had Westhead in his head and heart in that moment, I thought spoke to ultimately the leader that he becomes. Yeah, I agree. I happen to think Adrian Brody is an extraordinary actor. Like That's just, what they say. He's he's just so incredibly good. And he knew where he wanted to step every piece of the way. Yeah. It was all measured. And I loved that. So, again, the awkwardness that he's holding on to when he's standing up at that mm-hmm. podium in the background. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that all these actors, I think, are just so incredibly good at is really sort of mining these nuances. Right. The look from one to the other, yeah. you know, that really sort of tells this silent story that I just really, really love. And they take care to give those looks, knowing exactly what you guys are going to need to do with them in post, which I really love. You know, so I feel like he was so able to understand that in that moment when he's on the stage, that he has no idea what his future is going to be. You know, and then watching him step up, playing the bit about Westhead, mm-hmm. you know, having that emotional moment that's very real, mm-hmm. and then pivoting so beautifully and so simply to the humor, you know, of the hair. Yeah. He's able to really just sort of move from one space to the other. And again, on the directing end, my job was really about could you shift over a little bit to your left on right. that? You know, but it's just sort of watching someone who really not only understands nuance and the power of it, but is incredibly open when I say, hey, that was incredible. Can I just get a little more of this or a little more of that? Another aspect is his father. We speak to his father and his father's not-so-glorious coaching past. How do you think that connection sort of speaks to who he becomes as a coach? Yeah, I thought that it worked really, really well. And I think that the scene between he and his wife is also a scene that I really, really like. I swear, man, for the first time in my life, I look in the mirror and I wish I was my father. Someone they would fear. Your father failed because of who he was. He thought force was the answer for everything, yelling and hitting when the words wouldn't come. And you sat there as a little boy, wishing he could be the man that you are now. Yeah, well, he had his 12 at-bats. Now I get mine. I'm doing great, by the way. Thank you for asking. That scene in particular, I remember shooting it and sort of being like, I like the scene, but, you know, like sometimes there's scenes that are that are the little bit of cartilage, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is a cartilage scene, you right. know, we'll, we'll get it done. But it's not right. because it's so enlightening about his father. It gives you this little sort of snippet about what he might have gone through as a kid yeah. so what would have formed him. And so all of that is incredibly important, but also— when he says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get mine. Yes. He's neglecting his wife. Yes. He's not sort of experiencing everything that's around him. You know, she reminds him, you know, I'm doing fine too. And she's played it that way perfectly from the beginning of their earlier scenes back in season one of 
almost like reminding him that there's more to life than the moment that you're in right now and that don't lose yourself in this. Yeah. Even though she's talking about herself and how she feels, they're partners too. Yeah. And you can lose that partnership if you lose yourself in this other thing and by proxy a lot of other aspects of life as well. Yeah, and I love that because you kind of see that happen mm-hmm. after that scene, and I thought that was really great. So with that, we see him struggling to be a coach now because, in my opinion, he's still sort of in that place of assistant coach slash former player who has been a support system to the team but not necessarily a leader of the team. He's displayed leadership throughout, but he needs to evolve very, very quickly and on the job in order to be able to keep the job. That transition... Because it happened really, really quickly. Like when all the players are coming by and they're saying, hey, coach, do this, do that, da-da-da-da. Oh, Riles, uh, you know, they're not looking at him as coach. And he has to grab the bull by the horns very, very quickly. Will you shut the fuck up? All of you. Nobody fucking listen. Sit down. Now you're going to listen. You know what you're doing? Do you? Bitching, crying, pointing fingers. Shit. Fucking champions, my ass. You know why you lost last year? Because of this shit. Because you start fucking popping off about each other. Cool. You sniping at Jamal? What's your excuse for playing like a fried turd? Hmm? I don't know where you got the idea you're a star. You're not. You have any insight as to how maybe Adrian played it or how you see it? Yeah, I mean, I remember Adrian came in to the scene with a very clear and practiced understanding of what he was after. It was a very important scene to him, Mm -hmm. that transition, and he had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do with it. I think that a scene like that just feels so completely about the actor and that very personal transition that happens like he had to find it so we've got that scene with genie and magic where they talk about standing up to dad dr bus but from different entry points because she has her own issues with him and we've just seen what he's going through with dad you're my hero i just mean because you stood up to him you know Glad somebody fucking did for once. And he can't do anything about it. He can't bully you, can't beat you down. I'm sure he tried to guilt you. Oh, yeah, he tried. <laughs> <laughs> did do that. But all his tricks fell flat. But they do connect almost like brother and sister in this moment. Can you speak to that scene and that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I really like that scene a lot. And dare I say they connect... Also, there's a slight layer that's not brother and sister, which I'm not sure if I'm supposed to sort of get into that. But I really, um, (laughs) but I really like that scene. And yeah, I came to that scene very much about, you know, these two people who are kids who are unsatisfied with their dad. And there's also that thing where, like, again, the the kids are whining, you know, I like that magic 
thinks, yeah, maybe maybe I should have just let it go. Right. You know, there's a little bit of self-reflection in there, and I thought Quincy did a great job. And I, I always feel like Hadley is like this incredible actress, and she again, is. was one of those moments where I step back. Before this is over, I'm going to make you give yourself credit for all of this. <laughs> I'm going to force you into giving yourself credit before this, because I've seen it. I've seen you manage the thing so well. It's like, I understand that these actors step up and they do their thing. But without the direction that you provide, they wouldn't be able to manage it as well. Look, I mean, yeah, look, I'll, I'll give myself credit. Thank you. It's, no, I'm not, I'm not not giving myself <laughs> no, I'm credit. No, I understand. I understand that you're not diminishing what you did. I'm trying to exalt what you've done. Right, right. Well, thank you. You know, but look, I think that, like, to me, directing is so exciting because you get to see what other people bring through the door. Yes. You know, that to me is the exciting part. What, you know, what you come through the door holding on to, I just get to exploit it. I see something and I'm like, oh, that's amazing. And then I just want to make it bigger. Right. That's what I think directing, that's why it's so exciting because it's the collaboration. And if you can get that, then you can create something. Tanya, thank you for coming in. Thank you for your humility, which I'm going to fix. But... Appreciate your passion, your incredible talent, and everything that you bring to the show. Last year, this year, and hopefully next year. Yeah, I love the show. It's one of my favorites. Well, the show loves you as well. Thank you. Yeah, you are very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's time for The Buzzer Beater with actor Jason Clark, who plays Jerry West. We'll talk about his accent work and how he views his character's progression. And maybe share a few laughs. Energy is a word that I would associate with you. You mm-hmm. burn more calories playing mm. Jerry West when I hear you coming. Mm. Before you get there, it's like mm. you make this bridge, this transition mm. between Jason and Jerry. Mm. But is there a transition period from you and becoming Jerry? And how does that work in your head? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I have a character to play, of course. And I have to, uh, you know, embody and deliver that character with integrity and respect and hard work. But then I've also got a role within these scripts and within this story that I need to do with it, you know. And, and this is a very particular time in Jerry West's yes. life. And I feel like people have often missed that of like, you know, one year is different from the next, yep. you know, with what you're happening, with what's going through you, what's, you know, the journey that you're on. And, um, and yeah, every single day, yeah, I would burn, dude. I would just, yes. I would be burning. I would, I would, once I put those Cuban heels on, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Once I tucked I that I thing do. in, once I got that wig in, you know, once I knew that, you know, John C. Riley was waiting for me in the other room, you know what I mean? It was like, I was there to have a great time, you know, even though yes. I was going through a crisis. Yeah. I loved the work. I loved what it was about. And, you know, and I loved you know, what Jerry was showing in this, in this ensemble of actors and athletes that we're portraying, you know, people in this, in this, in this business and in this game and that he's what every athlete goes through at some point. It's funny that you bring that up because I don't think people, I think when people watch this show, they think we're saying that Jerry West is that guy. Yeah, They're not looking yeah. like he's going through a state of flux. Yeah, no, they don't. Yeah, it's, which, which has really struck yeah. me as weird. A few people have, I mean, a lot of yeah. people have actually, but you know, and also... He's angry, but I would use the term that Jerry used. I just care. He cared so much. Right, exactly. Like, you, you don't just hit him, Karen. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, and, and, and having years of, of that not recognized until, you know, he goes through a catharsis. 
and it was up to all of us to individually strap up, put the boots on, and and um, bring it. That thing of where, when you're as great of a player as Jerry West was, being a coach must be difficult because the players that you're you're coaching aren't as good as you were. Yeah. So you're asking them to do something. Yeah. That they just can't do. And they don't have the experience you have on the other side now that you've been through everything. Yeah. So it, of course it's a. You know, it's a cross. It's, a, it's, a, exactly. it's an intersection of like six roads going everywhere. Yeah. So there's a duality between understanding that you probably aren't best suited to be a coach. Yeah. But not knowing exactly where you fit yeah. within the scheme of management yeah. and all of that stuff. And wanting to fit. Yes. And wanting to, wanting to be involved. Yes. You're still wanting to give. And finding a place. Yeah. And, and all of that stuff. Uh, this is a curious question. So I've worked with British actors before. Mm-hmm and how they're able to do an American accent. Mm-hmm. But you're Australian, mm-hmm. and you're doing a West Virginia accent. Yeah. How do you do that? That's the most sophisticated way that I can ask. Yeah, hard work. Robbie. Okay. It's, um, <laughs> but it's, it's great. It's, you know, because I think part of me is inherently lazy as a person. No. Yeah, I, I don't believe yeah, 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 yeah. it. That's hard to believe. It's funny. I read an old letter that my friend, my best friend, wrote to me when he was 21. He's going to Europe, and it was addressed to Jason Clark, the laziest man in the world. <laughs> And my mum found it, you know, she's cleaning up my stuff. Yeah, Jeremy wrote it to me. That's a beautiful letter. But, you know, so it's all, you know, that has kept me honest and hardworking the entire time. It's been, the, it's, you know, to take a metaphor, it's been the stone that I've had to go back to. Right. And then, you know, you you find so much from a person's voice, from a person's, the way they speak, the way they, you know, their, their accent, the, you know, the words. And then you've really got to get somebody good, man. You've, you've, you've got to go out and get great help. And I got Tim Monick. And he's a wonderful dude that it's funny that, that that everybody in the business knows Tim. I mean, he's the best dialect coach in the world, I think, by a long way. Mm-hmm. And it's just a pleasure to work on it, you know, and hear it. I mean, accent is everything for me. It's just, it's the place I start. Okay. But it's, uh, I tell you, man, it's kept me honest. <laughs> the fact that I have to, Rodney, if I can't do it, I can't work, you know what I mean? It really works and it's really convincing. From a guy that only does one thing, it's amazing to hear someone who can do two things. But I want to talk about Jerry's emotional arc from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, he's gone through so much from where we started to where we are. Mm -hmm. Is there any way that you could sort of um, speak to that? Jerry's fine in the light. I loved my relationship with Quincy. Like when I first saw Quincy, when we first got, I started practicing basketball Mm -hmm. way before we started shooting. Right. And I could see that, he was a young kid out of, you know, nowhere and nothing, but you could just see it with that smile and whatever, you know, you see it. And He's got thought, a lot you know, of charisma, that Quincy. He, well, he, he, there was just something pure in him, you know? Yes. There was really something, you know, like... He's a genuine guy. Yeah, like, you know, the great soccer players play with a smile. They live with a smile, mm-hmm. you know? It's not just teeth. Right. But I thought, you know, I'm going to go over and talk to this guy. No, no, wait, Chase, wait, he'll come to you, man. He'll, if he wants to, he'll come to you. And he did. He comes up one day, you know, and we had this connection, this bond, and, and it really struck me as I was going through Jerry's book at the time that that Jerry learned to be Jerry and he kept learning his entire time and through his relationship with people, he thought by winning he'd get, but he got, he, he got back from, from being there for people and going into people and letting them into him. Connection. Connection, you know, and, 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 and opening up that he was so much more than just an athlete. Mm -hmm. He was so much more than a dirt poor kid from West Virginia but it takes others. Right. Like it really, it took others and they just keep coming in. And, th- and mm-hmm. you know, Jerry's, he's on that path to learning, but he's on the continual path, Rodney, of, you know, where you, where you work so hard 
And you can now be who you want to be if you take that mantle and if you allow it to happen to you. Mm-hmm. That connection of Jerry and, the, you know, and these teams that he's put together, these young men that he knows, and there he is on the Dan Patrick show, and there he is, and he talks about it. You know, it's always the players, Dan. It's always the players, you know. You can't win without a great team. And um, and that's what he learns in terms of people and management and you know, we're a family, man. We we really are in this great, and that's like our business, mm-hmm. Rodney. You know, it's just like, you know, there's actors that go and sit in their trailer, but you, you got to be part of it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have gotten myself ready without that walk in and the crew and everybody. Yeah, and that feeling of like, you know, oh, the sound guys are coming here. Gotta, you know, it was like my ritual. You know, in the makeup chair, stuff going on, bit of laugh here. You know, get my hair on. You know, and all of a sudden, man, yeah, I'm ready to go. And at that point. You're ready to be open and out there in front of a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. It's an evolving thing. And that Jerry West, and you look at his history as in the entire game, he's evolved more than pretty much anyone else in the game. Mm-hmm. He's been there, all the commissioners, all the whatever. Yep. And it's like, this is the beginning of it. Yep. I think a lot of athletes, you think you have to be that, particularly when you're the, the go-to dude, that you've got to be that rock, that, that right. don't let anybody in, don't let anyone break your oar. You know, with, but now he's realizing, no, 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 man, it's, it's a completely different ball game. And he's picking it up on it here. You've got to stay up with the technology in our business. Yeah. You've got to see what these young dudes are doing, how they're moving, what gets them going. Yeah. And then he goes on to put together three, four of the greatest teams in history because of that. Yeah. He's not there yet, you know, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? Is there a tone or a theme as to how you approach Jerry? Because it comes <laughs> off a lot of times as comedic. Yeah. Even though it's not intentional. No. I know it's not yeah. intentional. But it is funny as hell. No, it is. There was definitely that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it is something that I consciously went to, to bring it, to not be behind it. I'm not going to be the dude dragging the tail here. You know, I'll leave it to this group of people to tell me to tone that shit down. You're not that. Yeah. No, you know, yeah. and, I, and, and so I, you know, I think we all went after it. Yeah. It made it fun. And through fun, you understand pain and through fun, you understand growth and cycle and through fun. You're able to sit there and watch it and not feel like it's a downer. Yeah. You know, you can enjoy it, but then still process it. I mean, there was so much material in there, you know. There's like deeply serious stuff in there. Yes. You know, as a foreigner to watch, you know, this examination of America in this particular time, which has often been just music and laughed and disco and, you know, shoulder pads and fun, 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 to be like, man, saddle up. Yeah. Because, uh... We're going we're gonna to take you down something else here. But don't worry. It's going to be fucking cool because that's what it was and that's what these people are. And it's going to be educational and it's going to be enjoyment. And it was done with class. You know, I, all the dudes dressing up, you know, mm-hmm. the style, the thing. It just reminds you that, that um, there were some titans. I mean, proper titans. Jason, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure, sir. Thanks for listening to the official Winning Time podcast. A special thank you to our guests, author Jeff Perlman, director Tanya Hamilton, and actor Jason Clark. Next week, we'll be back to talk about episode six. How will the Lakers perform in their return to the finals? New episodes of the podcast come out every Sunday night after the latest episode of Winning Time, which airs on HBO. Make sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Rodney Barnes. I look forward to speaking with you next week. Be good. The official Winning Time podcast is a production of HBO, 
Hyper Object Industries, and Pineapple Street Studios. Our producers are Bria Mariette, Noah Camuso, and Elliot Adler. Darby Maloney is our editor. Our engineers are Harry Nelson, Davey Sumner, and Jason Richards. Our executive producers at Hyper Object Industries are Harry Nelson and Claire Slaughter, with production support from Zaley Mahoney. Our executive producers from Pineapple Street Studios are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Savon Slater at HBO Podcasts.